Um, so I, I, there are a lot of places, and I don't know, I probably said three times, go home and read this section or go home and read that section. Uh, just because there's so much. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're ta- when we're talking about, and ultimately what we're getting to is, as Jesus is great high priest and the new covenant, we're talking about the fullness of salvation. Like, that's it. And so, it's, um, it's inexhaustible, and I'm sure it's exhausting to, <laughs> to hear. And, and, but what it, what it should do is it should af- affirm your confidence in Scripture that what we see in the end, we could, could have seen in the beginning. And I think we mentioned it last Sunday night, maybe. But Hebrews, because it connects so much back to the Old Testament, it gives us our an understanding of, okay, the New Testament writers who quote the Old Testament and then give us their explanation of it. That's the expo- That's like a, that's like a God-given interpretation of Scripture. So I could go and read an Old Testament passage and tell you through prayer and study the way I feel the Lord is leading in that passage. But when the writer of Hebrews gives his explanation of something written in the Old Testament, because he was led by the Spirit of God to write the things he wrote, we know that his interpretation of that Old Testament passage is spot on. Okay, so... When you, and it, but you can see that all throughout all of the New Testament, especially in the epistles, uh, and the Pauline epistles, um, when he quotes Old Testament and then gives sort of a, a narration or a commentary. Okay, I've talked too much. Okay, I have a question. Yes, sir. Where did Cain come up with his wife? That's a really good question. So what do you think the inevitable answer is? It was his sister. Cain, where Cain's wife? Right. Yeah. Right. And 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 we're thankful for and forgive us, but we've been calling your dad um, Papa Bruckner at our house. <laughs> I don't know if that's an insulting to him or not, but. That was just sort of the he spoke of that very thing, not of Cain, but you know of Melchizedek. That because God sent him out, you know, and then he got right, and and so nobody in Scripture tells us that thing, and so God didn't want us to know it, right? And um, there are some things that we can we can deduce through looking all throughout the text and back and forth, um, but that's just one of them that. We're, we don't know. Uh, Nora, do you know if there was another page? <laughs> Can you go look in the truck, Sylvia, and see if it's in there? Um, no, but God told you, you know, Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. So I'm sure right. Be fruitful and multiply. Yes. And, and 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 the thing about and the, the the thing about it is that God God had a God had a story He wanted to tell, and it involved the the family members that we know Abel and Cain and Seth, right? 
that, that's the story that he wanted to tell us for the purpose of his purpose, his will, his plan that is fulfilled in all of Scripture. And so there are a lot of things in Scripture we just don't know or in history, right? Because the Bible isn't a end-all, be-all for history, right? It's just, it's just what the, the Lord wanted to reveal to us in what we talked about this morning, this plan and purpose that began in Genesis and, and finds its fullness in Christ. And so um, here's what I want to do. Uh, look, open up to Luke 22, or 24, excuse me, Luke 24. I mentioned this one, and I wanted to read it just so it was in our minds as we continue on through this. There, this passage, and I want to go back to Psalm 51 before we look at the rest of um, Hebrews 8, because it will help us, but it also... I really rushed through that this morning. So Luke 24, we could just really start in uh, 26. So two disciples are on the road to Emmaus. Uh, Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. They're not truly, you know, behind the whole thing. They're confused. They're sad. And Jesus comes to them and is, you know, asking them what's going on. They don't know it's Jesus. And they're telling Jesus the story, not knowing that they're talking to Jesus. But then he says, well, let's start, look at 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Okay? Who? All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Here's the the really important uh, sentence. And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, just in case you don't know, Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So when Jesus says, beginning with Moses, that means he said, I'm going to take these two disciples, we're going to have a Bible study, kind of like the version like what I've been trying to do the last two Sundays take you back to Genesis and show you things concerning Christ well he took them to Genesis and he did it perfectly like that would have been the best Bible study ever because he started in Genesis in the books of Moses and showed them the things concerning him and they didn't stop there he continued in the prophets Jeremiah, who we're going to look at today, who speaks about that. Isaiah, who is always talking about the coming servant, uh, the suffering servant, the Messiah. Like all of these, he interpreted in them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so we we hinted at copy and shadow. We didn't hint at it. I nailed it. Copy and shadow. I hammered that home. Patterns, copy, shadow, right? It's, It's something that was giving us a suggestion of something else. We couldn't see the detail. We couldn't see the reality, but we knew it was something pointing to somewhere else, and it was pointing to Jesus the whole time. The sacrifices, the priests, the law, all these things were pointing to... And here's where I want you to understand. They were pointing to the ministry of Jesus. So that's in Hebrew, in, in, in that chapter 8 and verse 6, it says Jesus has a ministry that is more excellent 
It's his ministry, meaning that's his service. Ministry just means service. And so Jesus has a ministry or a service that is more excellent than all of the high priests that ever lived and all of the bloody sacrifices that took place. And uh, that, yeah, that that is his ministry. So it's not just that Jesus is better, but his ministry is better because the covenant, the new covenant that he uh, mediates is better because the law that's built on that uh, covenant is also better. I mean, the promise, not the law, the promise. So, again, I feel like I'm already starting just like, whoa. Uh, but turn to Psalm 51, because I want to see in Psalm 51 how David had a sense that the things that he was doing and that the priesthood was doing wasn't enough. Which sounds heretical for me to say that, but it it, it becomes blatantly obvious that – and here's why it sounds so bad, and we'll see this in Hebrews 8. It sounds so bad because God set it up. Right? He's the one that put it in place. And he put something in place that wasn't enough. Let that sink in for a second. Now, a lot of people use that as a way out of Christianity. Right? They use it as an excuse. Oh, well, God started something that he got wrong. Well, that's not that's not the way. That's not the way it's worked. It's not the way it worked out. And this is what I, I want you to have to understand. And I, what I tried to express to you by looking at the beginning of Genesis and also by thinking about the covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? God and His omniscience and His knowing everything and His... Uh, what it's all his his power, all of his wisdom, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had it all planned. Okay. Now you're like that doesn't make any sense, and to you and me it doesn't. But you're not God, right? I'm not God. The Father and the Son and the Spirit had the plan to begin with. And it included a faulty covenant. Now we'll see what that means when we look at Hebrews 8. Now, I will just say this. The way that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit did it actually brought more glory to God than if they just would have got it right the first time. And I... It's weird, isn't it? If if the old covenant because because here, here's what I want you to understand. Without the old covenant, without the sacrifices, without the temple, without the high priest, then Jesus isn't exalted as our great high priest. Grace isn't grace. God isn't God isn't um, his patience isn't expressed, and so. While we see fault and we see that it didn't work, it worked exactly to plan. It worked exactly to plan. Okay, but anyway, okay, Psalm 51, David's getting, he gets a sense that it isn't, this isn't it. 
And ultimately, to go back to that, you either have to think God knew what he was doing or he didn't. I think I'm just going to stick with God knew what he was doing, right? Yeah. I, I, that's, that's where I, I fall. Okay, Psalm 51. Now, David knew the, the blessings and curses of the Old Covenant, right? We talked about this morning. That if you obey, God says, I will bless you. If you disobey, I'll curse you. That was it. That was the that was the line. That was the promise of the old covenant. Right? David knew that he was a wretched sinner. And that's what this psalm is. It's about his sin. And instead of crying out, Lord, will you just will you just bless me? Will you look at what I the good I've done and just bless me? He starts out Psalm 51 with a concept that's not in blessings and curses. And it's mercy. Mercy is not receiving what you deserve. Not receiving what you deserve. David committed adultery, lied and was deceptive and murdered the woman's husband. If there's anybody that deserved cursing, curses, it was David. And he, had, he said, have mercy on me, O God. Right? That's the only thing he knew to do. Because he knew he deserved the curse. He knew he did not deserve any blessing. Have mercy on me, O God. And, but here, based on what? According to your steadfast love. That's, that's the bottom line. Is that... God had revealed himself enough to David to know that God's love could somehow pass over his sin. Somehow. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Now, it's not to say that... that, that, um, Moses did not write and say that God was merciful and steadfast in love. He did. He said that. He said that in, I think, believe it was Exodus 30-something. And so what does that mean? That means David knew his Bible. David knew God because David knew the Word of God. And at that time, it was just what was up in uh, the Moses and um, I don't know what all David had. But he definitely had the, the books of Moses. And so he knew God because he knew the word of God. He knew the promises of God. He knew the mercy of God. So he cried out to mercy. He cried out for mercy. But he says, "Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin." That that goes beyond you disobey I curse you. That goes beyond um, I have no hope other than That go that is I have no hope other than that God will be merciful. And so he had to look beyond the copy and the shadow, the pattern, and say God can do something else. So basically, what I'm just trying to show you is that by faith, David believed that God would save him from what he deserved. 
Uh, and then you, you, you just go on and see it. If you look at verse um, verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. God can't do that, right? Because he's a God who blesses the obedient and curses the disobedient. He can't just let sin go. But yet David asked him to do that. But And you're like, well, David knew that, you know, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, every year the high priest is going to go into the temple on on David's behalf and the nation of Israel's behalf. They're going to, you know, they're going to send this goat out into the wilderness. They're going to kill another goat. They're going to cut they're going to cut open a bull. They're going to do all this for the sake of their transgressions. But look what he says in verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. He knew that there had to be something more. He he just knew it. And so by faith, by faith... David was saved from his sin. Now, I think Nora asked me this. I think she asked me this. Why did Adam and Eve not die in the garden? We talked. We looked at that this morning. And I said, well, God didn't punish their sins. Well, that wouldn't be a good God, would it, if he didn't punish sins? Well, he did punish the sins of Adam and Eve. Where did he do it? On the cross of Christ. God does not just say, Oh, your sin's gone. Your sin was born on the shoulders of Jesus. Whether you're Adam or someone after Jesus in the New Covenant. No sin is just wiped away. Jesus bore it. Jesus paid the the penalty for it. Whether it was before Jesus or after Jesus. That's why all these things were pointing to this apex of God. So we talk about why would God do it this way? Well, the cross is this and this I heard this from someone. The cross is this apex, this collision of the the totality of who God is. Right? So, if God just stuck with blessings and curses, he'd be just and faithful and true. But we wouldn't know anything of his grace. Right? And so you've got the justice of God coming and bearing down on His Son. You see His wrath coming and bearing down on His Son. You see His anger towards sin bearing down on His Son. But then you also see the love of God at the cross. Right? You see the mercy of God, the grace of God. God is... His fullest revealed in the cross of Christ. In all of His attributes, and all of His character. And that was the plan. Right? That was the plan. That God is most glorified through the death of His Son. For this, And that's why I said the blessing and the curses is that when He was on the cross, He was cursed so that we could be blessed. Even though He... Deserved the blessing, and we deserve the curse. Okay, so let's move on. Let's go back to Romans 8. I'm sorry, Hebrews 8. Verse 
So start at 6, and we'll just read it and push on 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look for a second. So I feel a little bit better about what I said because the Bible's saying it here. Okay, there's a problem. And where's the problem though? Look at verse 8. For he finds fault with them. He finds fault with them. Now, what he's about to do is he's about to quote Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, who wrote his book five to six hundred years before Jesus was born. Okay? So this was, pro- this was prophetic, spoken. Uh, Jeremiah is speaking the words of God. For he finds fault with them when he says. So when he says, Jeremiah says, Jeremiah is declaring the words of God. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. Look at that. For they did not continue in my covenant. So look back up. Verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, they did not continue in my covenant. Look what he says that he did then in return. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. That ought to make a shudder. Oh. For God to declare that he does not care and have a concern for us. That is why... That's why we're thinking about the new covenant being something better. Because what happens? They didn't hold up their end of the covenant. And he says, I, that's, you broke it. I'm out. So keep that in mind as we're talking about something better. Verse 10. Uh, let's just stop there. There's a couple things I want you to make sure that you see. Because if you're, here's what I want you to do as you read scripture. I want you to ask questions always. So if you're reading verse 8 and you say, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not, okay, so wait. So he's establishing a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah? Well, what about, about me? I'm not in the house of Israel. I'm not in the house of Judah. So how do I fit into this? Is he just talking about Israel? See, this is, but you, it's okay to ask these questions. Because th- what it should then do is take you into other parts of the Bible to help you answer those. And so just so we understand, because he, he's got it split, house of Israel, house of Judah, because the nation of Israel split at one time, right? Split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was... Remained Israel, 
And then the southern kingdom, which was the tribe of Judah, the area of Judah, was, was called Judah. So what's he saying? He's, he's doing this to Israel to the fullest. Now, so where does that leave us? And just so we know, that would make us Gentiles outside of Israel. So he doesn't say anything about Gentiles here. So what, what can we do? Let's look at three passages real fast. Acts chapter 1. Verse 6. So Jesus has died, buried, resurrected, spent uh, spent time with uh, the disciples, and he's about to ascend to heaven. Verse 6. So when they had come together, the disciples and Jesus... They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, to Israel. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, there's a lot of things we can talk about here, but the one thing I want you to see is that he doesn't, Jesus is not going to just talk about Israel. Look what he says in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, okay? Jerusalem is in the house of Judah. And Judea, which is in the house of Israel. And Samaria, which also is, but also to the ends of the earth. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. So then you're thinking, okay, well, isn't all of the Old Testament talking about, like all these prophecies, talking about restoring Israel, doing all these things for Israel? Yeah, it is. But there is there's a sort of a mystery, as Paul would call it. Chapter 3, excuse me. Ephesians 3. We could read the like ten verses before that, but I'll just stick to three. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, Peter was known as the apostle to the Jews. Paul was known as the apostle to the Gentiles, okay? He gave the Jews a chance. They rejected him, and he said, okay, I'm taking my ball. I'm going to go play with the Gentiles. But it wasn't like Paul just made that up. He was actually just being obedient to Scripture, the Old Testament, which we'll come to that in a second. So he says, verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly, verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. 
Here it is. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, what does that mean, they're heirs? It means they're sons of Abraham. It means they have inherited the promise that was promised to Abraham and his offspring. And I mentioned that this morning. And that's through what? How do you become an heir? Does he say it? There's one, one word I'm looking for. Faith. Faith. Not lineage. Not ethnicity. But faith. That is what brought the Gentiles in. Faith in Christ. And... Paul is very clear that this wasn't just, again, Jesus is like, okay, the Jews, or God's like, okay, the Jews are not taking it the way I'd hoped they would, so I guess I'll go talk to the Gentiles. No, it was the plan all along. All along. Again, so we see, oh, that looked like God messed up, so he had his plan B. That was not the case. It's not the case. So instead of taking you to five million places in the Old Testament... Paul has done the work for me. And in Romans 15, he quotes three, maybe four places in the Old Testament where he speaks of the Gentiles being brought in. Romans 15. And if you really want to get into the nitty-gritty of this, read Romans 9, 10, 11. But be prepared. Romans 15, verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that would be the Jews, right? To the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises. Who, who, where did the promises come from? They came to Adam and Eve, then they came to uh, Abraham and to his offspring. The promises given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. So, if you have uh, certain translations, you might not be able to tell that these are actually quotations from the, New Te- from the Old Testament. So, I'll, I'll give you the, the designation, the address, and then I'll read it. So, this one, the first one, is from 2 Samuel 22. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Verse 10. And again, it is said. Now here's another quote. Deuteronomy 32. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11. And again, another quote. Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And one more time, and he gives us the address. Again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse. And what's the root of Jesse? It's David. What does David give us? Christ, Jesus. The root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. So, that is just Paul acknowledging that... God planned to bring Christ not just to the house of Israel, the house of Judah, 
but to the nations. To the nations. To the world. Alright. So that was, go back to Hebrews 8. And as you're turning there, I want to read this for you, and you can go home and, and check it out yourself. Um, so it's pretty harsh language that God's using about their rejection and his then not having concern for them. Here's a little bit of the relationship. Here, here's a passage from Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman and her menstrual impurity. This is God speaking. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land for their idols with which they had defiled. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, and that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came." So one more thing you might think, but if he's that unconcerned with them and he's that judgmental towards them, how is he keeping his promise? Well, there's a word that starts with an R and ends with a nint, a remnant, right? He, he was always keeping for himself. And that's what I want you to understand, that covenantal, cov- the covenant of God is towards a people, right, that he is keeping, a people for his own possession, as we see in First Peter. Always, always God has a people, even if the majority of the rest of them are running around acting like this. So he's kept his promise. He's kept his promise. All right, all right, now we got to move on. So here's the covenant. Verse 10 of chapter 8. Sorry. Hebrews 8, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their heart or in their minds and write them on their hearts. Now, when God established the old covenant, where did he write the laws? On tablets of stone. Why is the new covenant better? Because he's not writing, ta- he's not writing his law on tablets of stone. He's writing it on their hearts and minds. Big difference. Big difference. If we went, well, we won't. Uh, we'll, hang on. Okay, keep going. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will be their God, and they shall be. My people. Now, look back at verse 9 and look at the comparison. Verse 9, what did he say? They showed no, or they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them. 
And the new covenant is, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Period. Period. Again, and I go back to the way we looked at it this morning. The promise of the old covenant was you get what you deserve. The promise of the new covenant is the free gift of God is eternal life. You, You get what you don't deserve. Verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Now this one's kind of funky. And I look at it in two different ways. Number one, the first thing that comes to my mind when I see... Well, no, I'll do it backwards here. God is saying that there will no longer be a priesthood in the line of Aaron. Because the only people that went into the presence of God ever in the Old Covenant was the sons of Aaron. Ever. Like, you had to be in the line of Aaron to go into the Holy of Holies. Okay? They're the only ones who had access. They're the only ones who stood between uh, God and, and Israel. So in a sense, what he's saying here is that in the New Covenant, everyone will be priests. Everyone will be priests. The Holy of Holies... Was and we'll see this in in chapter ten as we get to Hebrews chapter ten. The holy holy the holy of holies was cut off from the rest of the temple with a sixty foot veil that was ridiculously thick, and you did not go in there. What happened to that veil when Christ died? It ripped from the top to the bottom. What did that say? I, you don't need a priest anymore. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It was an act of God to declare you don't need a priest anymore. You don't, need, and so they didn't have to rely on their brother who would have been a son of Aaron or a Levite. They all could know the Lord, but notice it was from the least to the greatest. From the least to the greatest. And if you remember in Acts when the Holy Spirit, when this took effect in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost, and it said, and, and Peter quoted another prophet that said, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to misquote it. He says, uh, I will pour out, uh, quoting Joel, who's 
speaking on behalf of God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. All flesh, right? Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now, if you are in Christ, you are a priest to God. Peter says you are a priesthood, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. That's just, that's just the result of the new covenant. That's the result of the new covenant. Not just that you're a royal priesthood, but you're a set-apart nation, a chosen race, a people for his own possession. Covenantal. Relational. That's what God is after. So, then 12. Verse 12. This is like the apex of it all, right? This was the cry of David. This is how we know that David was looking for something else. Because in the new covenant, he says, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Uh, what, how, how's that song go that we sang this morning? We did sing it this morning, right? Here it is. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. The God, or for God the just, is satisfied to look on Him, Jesus, and pardon me. Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great, unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. That only happens. The mercy is given towards the iniquities, sins remembered no more because of the blood of Christ. Because of the sacrifice. So, if you want three really helpful ways to think through uh, the summarize the new covenant, here are three words. And I'll give a quick sentence to help you think through it. Number one, position. Your position with God changes in the new covenant forever. Condemned, declared innocent. Guilty, sinless. Justified before God forever. Your position with God changes because he counts not your iniquities or your sins and he... uh, Remembers them no more. What's that based on? The blood and righteous life of Christ. Right? Luke 22. This is the new covenant in my blood. And we're going to talk probably next week or the next about without the remission or without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. This cannot happen apart from the blood of Christ being shed. The blood of the Son of God. So position... Number two, person. So 
He changes your position before God, but he also changes you as a person, right? You have the law written on your mind and your heart, and you know him. How's this happen? So the first one was by the blood and righteous life of Christ. The second one is by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that's Ezekiel. Ezekiel's take on the new covenant is, I will take out your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh, put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and obey me. That's Ezekiel's take on the new covenant. Uh, Number three, so position, person. Number three, particular. Belonging to God. I will be their God. And they shall be my people. This comes from the will of the Father. Okay, so what we see is the new covenant isn't just about Jesus. It's about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are Trinitarian, meaning we know that all that we have comes from not just God. That's why we we don't just generically say God. But we understand that without all uh, all of the Trinity... The Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, without a part of them, we would be hopeless and still in our sins. The will of the Father, the life and death of the Son, and the and the the, the application of that by the Spirit. That is the the fullness of the new covenant and of our salvation. And all of it, all of it is what makes it better than the old. Um There's a quote I had in one of my books from John Piper, and it said, hear hear this about the New Covenant. God's people in the New Covenant will never be severed from God because the terms of the covenant are not only external words of God, which we've read, but internal works of God. He doesn't just require obedience, the old, right? He creates it, the new, right? And therefore, we will never be severed from God. And that. Oh yeah, the new earth, definitely. So that's the thing about the covenant. That's the weird thing about the new covenant is that God's taking care of it. <laughs> He's made it to where you're in a you're in a winning situation. He's given you the ability to live to please him. He has given you his law, he has given you his spirit, and he has shown you who he is. And that's that's what he does. Now, that doesn't mean I'm in the new covenant, so I'm going to be a couch, a, a spiritual couch potato. Now, your, as we talked about this morning, your obedience, your desire to be godly, your love for God and others, is a fruit that you are in the new covenant. Your your desire to keep up. Your end of the bargain. But again, the brilliance of the new the new covenant is that God has 
equipped you in a way that the old covenant could not do, right? It could not do. Um, look back at chapter 7, verse 18 again. We read it a couple times this morning. For on one hand, a, formal, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Here's what it is. For the law made nothing perfect. But the new covenant is you're counted perfect and you're being made perfect. The law could not do it. The law could not do it. Oh, and I have to say this. So you don't walk out this door. This is the last thing I'll say. You don't walk out this door and say, oh, forget the law. You say forget the law. You say forget God. You can't do that. Right. So here, here's, th- here's three things the law does. Number one, I think I wrote them down. Number one, uh, it shows us God and shows us ourself. It gives awareness. Okay. The God, the, the law of God says this is what this is what God demands because of who He is. And then when you start looking at the law, you're like, you know, it's like looking in a mirror after a a bad night's sleep. You're like, "Uh, I'm not not doing so well. I see what God requires. I see who God is. And the law is showing me I don't measure up. I don't measure up. And so what does that do? That says, okay, that's David saying, so I need something else. Right? And that's Christ. Uh, The second thing is, uh, it restrains evil. So the law given by God is gracious to us in restraining evil. Civil law, right? It's part of what God gave it for. So uh, to bring awareness, uh, to restrain evil. And the last one is the one that we discussed this morning and being obedient to it. It's, it's our way of life as regenerate people. As people who have the Spirit of God, you're like, how should I live? Well, God told you. There's the law. And it's not, oh, I'm going to go keep my salvation by keeping the law. It's, I've been made equipped and able to follow God in obedience and love for the sake of His glory and holiness. Uh, so, shows awareness of who God is and who we are, restrains evil. And also is our way of life uh, towards God's glory and holiness. So we must never get rid of the law. Now, last thing. And this is for you. um, Some of you might hear me say this and have no idea what I'm talking about. But look at verse 13 because I've got to just touch on it. This is for you uh, theology nerds that might be here. But maybe one day you might come across this. So, huh? Theology nerds? Huh? Verse 13. So, Hebrews 8. 8.13. So, okay, imagine Jesus has come and he has obliterated the, the animal sacrifices, right? And he died and he rose to heaven. But guess what was still going on? Animal sacrifices. It was still going on. 
And this is one thing the writer of Hebrews is really concerned about his audience is that he's afraid that they might go back to animal sacrifices and just obliterate all that he's talking about and all that the new covenant has brought. So look what he says. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. So we're talking about Jeremiah speaking on behalf of God 600 years ago, right? When he talks about a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. That word obsolete means he makes it old and decayed. And what it and what and he says, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old, look here, is ready to vanish away. So he's saying, you can go to Jerusalem right now, and you can still see all this stuff taking place. But I'm telling you right now, it's about to go away. Do y'all know how it went away? The destruction of Jerusalem. Now, now here's where you're gonna. This is where I'm getting a little for. When you start thinking about eschatology, and you start thinking about well, when I say eschatology, I mean end times, and you start thinking about what's going to happen and what you're looking for, and you know that you know is there going to be a new temple? Is there going to be a reinstitution of sacrifices? Well, so Jesus has just Jesus has just died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended to the heaven. And the apostles are going out saying he's better than all of that stuff. And it's actually all that stuff is useless. Uh, that's what he says in, in 10. Uh, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And he's saying it's going to go away. And it's going to go away in your lifetime. But so if we if we hear and think about at the end a reinstitution of the temple and the temple sacrifices, I gotta take a step back and say, what for? Why would God desire to bring back the thing that he got rid of and is actually obsolete, old and decaying and is vanishing away? So you just have to think through that. So as you think through Certain uh, certain things that might happen towards the end times. Again, if you've not studied these things, you don't really know what I'm talking about, and that's okay. But it's here, so I want to talk about it. And another thing, that sentence gives us an understanding of when or by when this book was written. Okay, so there's I am taking I take the position that every bit of the New Testament was written before 770 AD, which is when the destruction of the temple happened. Okay? Now, you might say what does that matter? Well, it matters it, just in some certain points of when it was written and when does it apply and this and that, but nowhere in the New Testament is the destruction of the temple ever mentioned, which if when the destruction of the temple and the ransack of Jerusalem happened, it was quite a big deal. But it was never mentioned. And so, well, I'll, I'll just stop there. Except in the huh? Except in what do you mean? Except in the Say, I. Right, right. And that was, that was uh, in Matthew 24 and things of that nature. And we can't go down that road, but just wanted to point out this passage 
and also in Hebrews 10 when we talk about um, the impossibility of uh, blood of bull and bulls and goats to take away sin. Um, that was a lot. And as we come back together next week, Lord willing, we'll look at chapter 9 and talk about the earthly holy place and about the heavenly temple uh, the and maybe get into the sacrifice of Christ. Not really sure. I'm, again, I just there's a lot to take in here. Um, I've spent two hours on a, on on Hebrews eight, um, and I just I, I just plead that you be patient with me in this. Uh, huh? Okay. Uh, and the more the more we know about the work of God through Christ Jesus. Uh, the more we cherish and love Him. And that's that's what our desire is. And that's what the apostles' desires are. So with all that said, um, let's, let's close the book on Hebrews 8. Okay?